0: Restore unto us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within us. Amen. I would like to thank our wonderful dean for today to preach from just a light passage where John gets beheaded, so thank you. Herod's birthday is the most famous birthday party ever, and it's the only one mentioned in the New Testament. You might remember Herod the Great, the monarch in Matthew's Gospel, responsible for the murders of the children in Bethlehem. His son was this Herod, Herod Antipas, who ruled after him. He was, in fact, the tetrarch of Galilee, but was popularly called king. Herod made claims to the royal line of David, and he wanted all the Jews to come together and recognize him as, as their true king. But John was preaching another king, the coming one who was about to appear. And Herodias had been married to Herod's half-brother, and she was also the daughter of another of Herod's half-brothers who had been murdered by his own father, that is, by her grandfather, Herod the Great. So Herod's wife was also his sister-in-law and his niece. And Herod's first wife, whom he threw out, was the daughter of the king of Nabatea, who got so angry with the way that his daughter had been treated that he sent an army to destroy Herod's soldiers. This is the real housewives of Galilee here. And now you can see why Herodias did not like John, this itinerant, wild preacher condemning her marriage. And you can see why Herod was trying to impress people at his birthday party. Into the context comes today's story, Herodias' grudge against John is gratified when she takes advantage of Herod's drunken boasting after her daughter dances in what I can only assume was the kind of dancing that the preacher in Footloose warned us about. (laughs) Ask me for anything and you can have it half my kingdom, it shall be yours. These words echo the tempter's words to Jesus in the wilderness, and Herod outmaneuvered by his wife in Mark's story, is greatly torn apart by the request, but fearing weak appearance feels he cannot revoke his oath in front of these powerful, career-advancing men, so he has John executed. Now, I am not a fan of this gruesome story at all, and the subsequent paintings of John's dripping head on a platter frightened me as a child. I'm not a fan of Herod's weak conscience, or his pathetic, magic bottle-genie wish-granting offer that flimsily veils his imposter syndrome and his insecurities. And I'm not a fan of the way that the only two women in this story are portrayed. An angry woman whose embarrassment fuels her murderous demand through manipulating her daughter, and a daughter who blindly obeys a vile request. And where is Elizabeth? Mary is at the scene of her son's death, but where is Elizabeth John's mother? Her lack of voice in this narrative grieves me deeply. And the deep sadness at forever silencing the voice of the one who cries in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord is a profoundly haunting image. And so I wonder why would the committee that establishes the lectionary include this text? And more importantly, why would Mark include this account in his narrative? It's the longest of the gospel's anecdotes and its only flashback. It's one of the only stories in Mark in which Jesus never actually appears. And it's a strange story about John in which the baptizer doesn't appear either. Even stranger beneath this story of John is the story of Jesus. Well, it does finally address our suspense from chapter one when, without any explanation, Mark reports. Now, after John was arrested, and it not only looks back, but it creates this forward-looking anticipation. Placing this story between last week when Jesus sent out his disciples on their first formal mission and the return of the 12 disciples during the heart of the expansion of the Jesus movement, Mark relays the story of John and Herod as a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death by the hands of a political, though sympathetic, figure. And this story does give us an opportunity to hear from Herod and others regarding whom they think Jesus is, Elijah, a prophet, John the Baptist, resurrected. Where is the good news in this story? What is the good news for us today? This past week and some, clergy and laity met in sweaty Austin, Texas for general convention, to make decisions about who we are as a Jesus people, how we will widen the doors to welcome all, and what it means to live out our baptismal covenant to respect the dignity of every person and all creation. Reports from convention let us know that conversations and resolutions and action steps were made regarding a variety of things, such as welcoming Cuba back as a diocese, prayer book revision paths, creation care, bearing witness to gun violence, racial reconciliation, sacramental marriage equality, ethical investing, anti-death penalty advocacy, women's stories and policies around sexual misconduct, exploitation, and gender disparity, and uniting behind immigrants in prayer, action, and legislation, and so much more. Today's gospel is an important part of the Jesus narrative that sets up the launch of the spread of the good news, and it comes at a cost. The life of John, the weak-hearted grievance of Herod, the murderous motivation of Herodias, the manipulation of a daughter to request death. Everywhere at this banquet, fear whispers. In Herod's ear, among Galilee's high and mighty, behind the curtain between mother and daughter, in a dungeon. We are bombarded daily with fear, as political decisions made on our behalf stun us with disbelief, leaving us consumed, helpless, or numb. Fear distracts us, and it paralyzes us, because it just feels too big to know what to do. Fear whispers to hold tightly to what is ours, because it will be taken away, and we will be left with nothing. Fear whispers to us that we are not enough and that we will never have or be enough. Fear makes us forget who we are. Today's opening colic reminds us to call upon God, who mercifully receives our prayers, who grants that we will know and understand what things we ought to do, and who gives us grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Friends, the good news today is that our God meets us in our fear and says, Dear one, let me take this from you. You are too precious to be possessed by fear. The God of love in the face of the whisper of fear names you beloved. God chose you, calls you her children, lavishes on you grace, and marks you with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. The brave and transformative conversations and resolutions and actions from General Convention are a counter-narrative to those whispers of fear, giving us hope and reminding us that love is stronger than fear. May the brave conversations of our sisters and brothers at conventions call us to be brave in our lives. May we bravely lean fully into the love that we were made from, and ask that love to occupy the places of our hearts that are still gripped in fear. Herod's banquet is only the first of two in Mark 6. Jesus hosts the second in the middle of nowhere for thousands of nobodies with nothing to offer except five loaves and two fish. And at that feast, fear has no place. They are all fed to the full with leftovers beyond comprehension. We have become good at living off crumbs, starving, never full, and grasping in fear. We are made for more than crumbs. Church, you belong to the banquet, the feast of the kingdom of God, where there is no scarcity and where out of God's deep generosity you are fed fully. And the radical notion of the gospel is that there is more than enough for us all. Fear is not our birthright. Love is. And so let us feast at the table of God today so that we may be satiated completely and be sent forth into the world to fearlessly live the God life in ways that are liberating, that shine light in dark places, and that proclaim the good news of a God whose kingdom has room for us all. Amen.